Well, good morning. Thanks, Allie. That was great. So many things going on. We're really excited about the marriage conference coming up. Um, hope to see many of you there. It's going to be a good time. Um, I uh, got my W-2 the other day. You know what that means. It is tax time, right? Man, I just love taxes. It's my, it's my favorite thing, my favorite time of the year. You know, gathering all that information to send it. No, not you. No, everybody, <laughs> everybody shaking their heads. No, um, no, it's, we don't like taxes, right? Um, believe it or not, for all time, people have been trying to get out of paying their taxes. Businesses, individuals, it doesn't matter. Over the years, decades, and centuries, the frustration and struggle has always been there. Now, um, I did some research. There's been some interesting taxes over the centuries. Check this out. In 1660, England placed a tax on fireplaces. Yes, fireplaces. The tax led to people covering their fireplaces with bricks to conceal them and avoid paying the tax. It was repealed in 1689. In 1696, England implemented a window tax, taxing houses based on the number of windows they had. That led to many houses having very few windows in order to avoid paying the tax. Eventually, this become, became a health problem and ultimately led to the taxes repeal in 1851. How would you like to have your windows taxed? Anybody? Window tax? In the 1700s, England placed a tax on bricks. A tax on bricks. And um, they eventually tried to change the brick sizes so you had large bricks so to avoid the tax. And then they taxed large bricks with even larger tax. And eventually that was repealed later on too. Uh, In 1784, uh, England introduced a tax on hats, a special tax on hats to avoid the tax. uh, Hat makers stopped calling their creation hats and um, called it headgear. So there was a time in England where you didn't wear a hat, you wore headgear to avoid the tax. It was repealed in 1811. Anyways, taxes and tax time, right? Well, believe it or not, we're going to be looking at what God's word has to say about paying our taxes. Can you believe that? Right here in Mark, as we go through the book of Mark, we're in chapter 12. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. Quick spoiler alert. Uh, Jesus says there is a lot more we have to think about than just taxes. Well, let's pray before we jump into God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we uh, want to submit to your word, your guiding, your leading, your spirit. Um, Father, we want to submit to you. God, we pray that uh, you would use this time to change us and grow us. Soften our hearts, Lord, to receive the truths of your word. As we've taken communion together this morning, we remember and thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. We worship you, Father. We thank you. We humble ourselves before you. We come to you courageously because of the blood of Christ. We give you glory, honor, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at this in Mark chapter 12. This is, I'm really excited about this. It starts out this way. And they sent him to some of the Pharisees and, they, and some of the Herodians. 
Now I'm going to stop there because Pharisees, Herodians, we've been talking about these religious leaders for a long time. And I, I want to give us a little bit of details about who these guys are. Now it's general, generally believed that these are the Jewish aristocrat party. I'm talking about the Herodians. That's a different word. We don't hear the word Herodians very often. Uh, a lot of theologians and scholars believe that the Sadducees and the Herodians are the same group of people. The Herodians, they had the same beliefs anyways. The Herodians were more of a political party and the Sadducees were more of a religious party but held the same religious beliefs. Um, So they believe they are a Jewish aristocratic party whose members came largely from the priesthood and the upper class. This is the Herodians being mostly a political group. Though less in number um, and more popular than the Pharisees, they occupied influential positions in the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish Supreme Court, and generally, generally cooperated with the Roman authorities. So these guys were not liked by the public very well. If you were cooperating with the Roman authorities, you were not liked by your neighbors. Rome was the enemy. They were ruling with an iron fist over the Jewish people. So these these guys weren't liked by the people. And in fact, they denied the truths of the resurrection, the future judgment, and the existence of angels and spirits. They accepted only the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as authoritative and rejected the oral traditions observed as binding by the Pharisees. So here you have this group of Pharisees, religious leaders, and these Herodians or Sadducees that are religious leaders as well, more political leaders as well. And they don't get along. Uh, They have differing beliefs. These guys aren't on the same team. But what they, what we kind of see happen uh, and see happen today is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right? So the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians join forces to come up against Jesus. Just a little bit of a background and history of these Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees that we've been talking about so much. Let's continue on in the text. And it says, they sent the Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him, said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And I'm trying to like drip that in hypocrisy, right? Because these guys don't like Jesus. What a statement they're making. It's full of hypocrisy and lies. They hate him and none of what they said is what they believe although it is very true. Jesus is the truth speaker. He is the teacher. He is only concerned with what the Father in heaven is concerned about. So this lets us know a couple things, what's going on here. These Herodians, Pharisees joining forces, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, the way that they're just you know, oogling praise over Jesus, even though they hate him, it tells us a couple things. They have a large and significant audience here. When they're trying to trip him up, this is on purpose uh, in a place where there's a ton of people around. They're playing to the crowd, and the crowd is full of important and powerful people. And secondly, this is a trap. Obviously, this is a trap. We should always be leery of those who profusely pour out their compliments on us. Let's continue on in the text. It says, is it lawful, they asked Jesus, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. 
And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marveled at him. The first thing I want us to try and wrap our minds around in this text, in its first felony notes, is this. Never try to force your agenda on the Lord. Never try and force your agenda on the Lord. These guys are enemies, these Sadducees, Pharisees, Herodians. They've come together. They've set the trap. They, they, they planned. This, was, this question was well thought out. They didn't just come up with this off of a whim. They got together. These enemies got together, planned, and said, okay, how can we trip him up? How could we met? What could we do? What question could we ask him that would lead him into heresy? I mean, there's got to be some way that we can really mess him up. We're sick of him. We want to get rid of him. We want to kill him. What's, how can we do this? And they sat, and I, I bet you they worked on this question for months. This is probably the best trap that the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, these scribes, religious leaders had ever placed for Jesus. I mean, they're asking him a question about the the ruling, the iron fist authority of the Roman Empire. They're asking him in front of all these other religious leaders and all of these Jewish people, this large crowd full of powerful people, Roman people even, around. And they're asking this question. It was... I mean, if, if he says, oh, you don't have to pay taxes, Rome is on him. I mean, it's, this is over because the Jewish people are like, woo, all right, we, we don't have to pay taxes. This would be a huge revolt. If he says you have to pay taxes, you've got this other side of things coming in and just a, a hot mess. This is probably one of the, the best traps they've ever set for him. They came, this is crazy, if we think about this, the religious leaders had dedicated their lives to God. They, they, were, they were men who had spent their entire lives studying the word of God. Most of these Sadducees, members of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, had memorized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Has anybody done a yearly reading plan here? Anyone? Right? Isn't it great? You go Genesis and they're like, man, this is awesome. These stories are great. Exodus, wow. Blow your mind. Red Sea parted. This is phenomenal. Genesis X, Leviticus, you're like, oh, wow. This is getting hard. Genesis X, Leviticus, Numbers. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if I'm going to make it to next week. Then you get to Deuteronomy, you're like, I quit. This is so hard. Has anybody ever made it past Deuteronomy in these yearly reading plans? No, it's hard. No, these guys had it memorized. These guys memorized it. They this wasn't just a dedication, oh, I love the Lord. It was their entire existence was built around worshiping, praising God, and making sure that the people of God did the same thing. And here they are, face to face with God in the flesh, the one they worship, the one they dedicated their lives to, the one they've memorized and the law and his teachings, here they are. And what do they do? They bring their own agenda. We can talk to the Lord as well. 
When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, he made a way for uh, us to be in right relationship with God, that we can actually talk to God now. We can pray to God. It is praying to the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. We can come to God with, with our concerns and our worries, anything. We can, we can talk to God just as well. We have a direct line speaking to him, bringing petitions, praise, glory, asking him anything that we want. Jesus may not be here in the flesh, but the very spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of every believer. And it's because of what Jesus has done for us that we can even do that. But we, like these Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees, sometimes we bring our own agenda to God too, don't we? So often our prayers sound like this. Lord, will you? Lord, I need you to. God, would you give me this? God, I want or would really appreciate this. I like to say it that way, you know. It's a little softer that way. Lord, solve this problem or grant me this. Or if I take my Bible and rub it three times... If I just pray just this way, God has to answer my prayer. You know, there's formula, right? You just take the... We need to work our our lives, our desires, our wants into God's agenda. Not bringing our agenda to God, but submitting our lives to His agenda. I want us to look at... a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. When his disciples ask him, Lord, how, how should we pray? This is how Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven. Now let's think about what that, just that starting out phrase means. Our Father. When we pray to God, we are praying to our Creator We're praying to the creator of the universe. We're praying to the all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing God. And we come to him as dad, daddy, father, Abba, father. Let that sink in for just a moment. Jesus, how should I pray? You pray to a loving, caring father, a perfect father. And where is he? He is seated on the throne in heaven. King of kings and Lord of lords. Royalty. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your, there is no name like your name. There is no one like you. You sit above everything and everyone. There is no one like you. Your kingdom come your will be done. Do you see the, the focus of this, this idea of prayer that Jesus lays out for us? This is, it is totally God-focused of who he is. We're coming to our Father who's in heaven, seated on the throne. We're saying, your kingdom come. Not, not my little kingdom come, but God, your kingdom come. Not my will be done. Not what I want, not what I desire, what, not what I'm looking for, not my agenda. But God, your agenda, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts or our sin as we also have forgiven those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's, a, there's this like powerful, God-focused thing in here. I mean, even, even when we ask for our daily bread to be forgiven our debts, it is all from Him. There's this recognition that everything, everything comes from our Father in heaven. I do a lot of research on prayer. I love prayer. And prayer has changed over the centuries in some good ways and in some bad. One of the bad ways it's changed is that it's become selfish and self-centered. I really believe that modern day prayer today has become selfish and self-centered. I'm talking in generalities here, not everything, but in generalities. When prayer is meant to be God-centered and submissive, submitting to God, prayer celebrates the sovereignty and power of a loving, protecting, and providing heavenly Father. Let me say that again. Prayer is meant to celebrate the sovereignty and power of a loving, protecting, and providing heavenly Father. But many times we come asking for adjustments to His sovereignty and not asking for help to submit to His sovereignty. Some of my, my favorite prayers that I, I like to pray today are prayers written and prayed by the Puritans. And I wanted to share one of those with you right now. This is a Puritan prayer. Heavenly Father, if I should suffer need or go unclothed and be in poverty, make my heart prize thy love. Know it. Be constrained by it, though I be denied all blessings. It is thy mercy to afflict and try me with once. For by these trials I see my sins and desire severance from them. Let me willingly accept misery, sorrows, temptations, if I can thereby feel sin as the greatest evil. And be delivered from it with gratitude to thee. Acknowledging this as the highest testimony of thy love. When thy son Jesus came into my soul instead of, my, of sin, he became more dear to me than sin had formerly been. His kindly rule replaced sin's tyranny. I love that. They just have a way with words. Teach me to believe that if ever I would have any sin subdued, I must not only labor to overcome it, but must invite Christ to abide in the place of it. And he must become to me more than vile lust had been, that his sweetness, power, life may be there. Thus I must seek a grace from him contrary to sin, but must not claim it apart from himself. When I am afraid of evils to come, comfort me by showing me that in myself I am dying, condemned wretch. But in Christ I am reconciled and live, that in myself I find insufficiency and no rest. But in Christ there is satisfaction and peace, that in myself I am feeble and unable to do good. But in Christ I have ability to do all things, though now I have His graces in part, I shall shortly have them perfectly 
in that state where thou wilt show thyself fully reconciled and alone sufficient, efficient, loving me completely with sin abolished. O Lord, hasten the day. You don't hear prayers like that anymore, do you? Whatever your will is, Lord, whatever your will, as long as I can be with you, as long, I mean, whatever, I don't care what it takes, God, just bring me closer to you. If I have to suffer to be close to you, bring it on. If you, if you, if you need to bring me low to be with you, then bring me to the lowest. God, make it so that you are everything. We don't bring our agenda to God. We bring prayers of submission and worship and praise and desperation for more of him. This high view of God leads us to our next point in the notes, and it's this. There is no authority except from God. There is no authority except from God. The sovereignty of God in all things includes the governing authorities above us. They're asking, hey, should we pay taxes? Jesus says, render to Caesar what Caesar's is to the Lord, what is the Lord's? In Romans 13, 1 through 7, well, I'll just read the first verse here. It says, Romans 13, 1 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Jesus answers their question quickly and easily by asking a question. Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. Whose likeness and inscription is on this? Whose likeness and inscription? It's Caesar's. Caesar was on the coin. Jesus says something remarkable once again. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. To the Lord what is the Lord's. Let's break this down just a little bit. It's really... Deep. This is a lot deeper than what we're thinking. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Taxes are Caesar's. So governments get a percentage of our income. We pay our taxes because God commands us to obey obey the authorities he has put in place. We obey the authorities above us unless they were to cause us to sin or ask us to sin. Then we would not obey that because God is our ultimate authority. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, render to God the things that are God's. In the context Jesus is answering this and bringing this out is this, he's using an image, an image that's on the coin. And they marveled at this statement. Why were they marveling? Why did this just like blow their minds? How did Jesus deconstruct this well-laid trap, this well-laid plan, something they probably had worked on for months to try and trip him up. They marveled at Jesus. He asked the question, whose image is on the coin? And the next logical progression of question is whose image is on you? If you render the image of the coin to whose image is on it, What's God's? The answer is that we are all made in the image of God. We are created. We are limited. We are finite. We are small. God is not. 
Jesus uses the truth of God's sovereignty over ruling authorities in the Imago Dei or the image of God to unravel the trap that these wicked men have set. Jesus says so much more than pay your taxes here. He says we belong to someone greater, someone infinite, supreme, the creator, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. The very life that we have is given and sustained by God. We bear the image of our creator. He gets to say whose we are. They weren't marveling at, at the, the, the straight statement of render to Caesar the things that are Caesar the things to God that are God's. They're marveling at what he's really getting at. Yes, pay the taxes that, to the authorities that this sovereign God has put into place, that's mind-blowing to them. They hated Rome. They wanted to just get rid of Rome. They thought that the Messiah was coming back to destroy Rome and he would set up this like government on earth that would defeat Rome. And here Jesus says, submit to Rome and pay your taxes to Rome. Mind-blown that God put the authorities in place. It's a truth they already knew. That truth is in the Pentateuch, the first five. It's in there. They knew this already. It's not just in Romans 1. Mind blown. Okay, pay our taxes. But everything belongs to God. Jesus blows their minds because they had such a small view of God. They had such a small view of the power of God and who he is. You know, we say sovereignty and we say God is all power. We use these big theological words like omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. But do we live that out? Do we actually believe that? I mean, in the the everyday things, right? Do we really trust him that he loves us and is all powerful? Do we really trust him when it comes down to it? I mean, when the rubber really meets the road, when it's really difficult. They didn't. And I, I think we struggle with it sometimes too, right? We believe those things. We trust in those things. We read God's word. We study God's word. And he is sovereign. He's all powerful. We say those big theological terms. And then we have a really bad hospital visit. Or we go to the doctor and we get some bad news. Or we lose that job that we've had for 27 years and we lose that pension. Or we lose someone close to us. Or we just go through something difficult in our lives. And all of a sudden that trust and that sovereignty and that omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence is just like, "Eh, sort of. I mean, that was fine when everything was going good. But man, now, hmm. Is he? We struggle with that. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. God is faithful. And as we work through these difficult things, and we go through the suffering, and we, we have a hard doctor's appointment, or we lose someone close to us, what we need to remember is that God never allows us to go through these things and walk through these things alone. He is with us. And One of the greatest things that we have when we are suffering, when we are grieving, when we know these things, is that we can come to God and say the hard things. God, why? 
Why have you let this into my life? So oftentimes we try and put on a face, wear a mask, or, or, or just walk. Through. Oh, you know, I may have cancer, or I may have lost my wife, or I may have lost this, but hey, I'm doing great. I'm doing just fine. And really on the inside, we're dying. We're suffering. And that difficulty, if we don't face these things, if we don't bring these things to God and we try to just deal with them on our own, they will destroy us. God never, ever intends for us to walk through the difficulties and sufferings of this life without Him. He wants to walk with us, talk to us, comfort us through everything in this life. It's okay. It's okay to go through the difficult things and say, God, why? Man, really? We had a training for our leadership yesterday morning. Um, Amy Kronzer was talking about prayer. And um, she said a great place to start in prayer is praying through the Psalms. I just want to encourage everyone to do that. If you're suffering if you've, you've gone through anything that I was just talking about or you, anything difficult in your life, pray through the Psalms. The, the writers of the Psalms, most of them written by King David, a man after God's own heart, man, you can hear the frustration and pain in his voice and through some of these Psalms. Why have you given me over to my enemies? You've left me here for dead. I mean, you're like, whoa, who's he talking to? Doesn't he know who he's talking to? Yes, he does. His father in heaven who sees his pain and his suffering and knows it and allowed it into his life. Therefore, we know that we can go to him and say, God, why did you do this? I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't even know how to deal with this. You got to help me. Yes, yes, yes. He will help you. Pray through the Psalms. Go to the Lord in these things. So what do, actually, let's get into this image bearer thing again. What does, it, what does it mean to be an image bearer? What it means right here, what this means is, it answers the question, what is God's? They're worried about paying taxes to Caesar. Jesus takes it again to that next level, and he's saying, what is God's? We are God's. Everything is God's. Everything is God's. But more so, Jesus is saying that we belong to the one whose image we bear. What an amazing statement. We all are image bearers of God. This truth carries with it great consequences, my friend. Great consequences. My life is not my own to do with whatever I want. That's what Imago Dei means. Being an image bearer. There are things about me I don't get to choose. All human life is valuable and should be respected and cared for. This is the sanctity of life. This is why we stand against abortion, and euthanasia. Life is precious and is a reflection of the life giver, the life creator. As image bearers, we have a responsibility to rightly reflect our creator. But much of humanity has rejected their creator and in so doing turned in on themselves they are made in His image, but that is not where they go. When we choose sin, we trade all that comes along with being made in the image of our Creator 
Let me really clarify this. When we choose sin, we trade all that comes along with being made in the image of our creator with shallow, hollow, pathetic substitutions. It is a rejection of our creator. It's the rejection of Imago Dei. Choosing, in choosing sin, we exchange royalty for rags. Choosing sin is exchanging royalty for rags. The only way we can truly reflect the glory of our creator is through Jesus, God's only son. You see, God knew we would struggle with this. He knew we would struggle with sin. He knew the religious leaders would struggle with the authority of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, what he was teaching. That's why he sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. Because we can't, we can't live up to the standard that was set, the perfect standard. A perfect God demands the perfect standard. We, we can't live perfect lives. We will sin, either in deed or in thought. And Jesus did not. Jesus lived the perfect life that we can't live. And sin is deserving of death. And Jesus took that death on himself for me and you. And he defeated death and sin on the cross three days later when he rose again from the grave. And all of these things that we've been talking about, authority and coming under authority, the image of God on us and exchanging royalty for rags by choosing sin, all of these difficulties, the suffering in life, all, all of these things find their answer, find their hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if there's any difficulties you're going through. Maybe things are going great in your life. Maybe you're walking with Jesus and things are going fine, but maybe they're not. I want you to know this, that God loves you, that he has a plan for your life, that he sent his only son to die for you. And no matter what it is you're going through, God is with you. He never leaves you alone. And if you're here and you're, maybe you got conned into coming this morning by a friend because they said Cracker Barrel and stop by here first. <laughs> if that's you and you're hearing about Jesus for the first time, I want you to know this, that Jesus loves you that you're not here on accidents or ha accident or happenstance, but that God has a plan for your life. And Jesus did die on the cross for your sins. And you can have eternal life with him for all eternity if you put your trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, acknowledging that you can't live perfection like he did. And when we go to heaven... There's not one person that's lived on earth that's going to go up to those pearly gates and hand over their resume and say, yes, I'm awesome, thank you. No, we hand over Jesus' resume and say, I'm here by grace through faith in this person, Jesus alone. Give your life to Jesus today. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. And it's, it is so much more than taxes. Father, it is all for you. You are calling us deeper. You're calling us closer. 
And you are calling some here right now unto yourself in relationship with you. I just pray for those people right now, God, that you continue moving on their heart. And he who begins a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion even at the day of Christ. God, we trust in that truth. We call on you, Father. Come and have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and uh, sing our closing song this morning.